Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Building Security in the Next Decade podcast. I'm Sammy Miguez. And I'm Drew Kilborn. Together, we have about 60 years of experience in the software and security spaces. This is where we talk with industry leaders about the cybersecurity challenges waiting for all of us just over the horizon. Today, it's our great pleasure to introduce John Stephen. Through his firm, Edify, John advises innovative security product startups, as well as CISOs who are maturing software security initiatives. For two decades, John led technical direction at Sigital, where he rose to the position of co-CTO. In 2015, he founded the Sigital spinoff Codescope and became its CTO. When Synopsys acquired Sigital and Codescope in 2016, they created a new role for John as the Senior Director of Security Technology and Applied Research. His skill set runs the gamut of software security, from managing security initiatives to cloud security, threat modeling, security architecture, static analysis, and risk-based security orchestration and testing. John is keenly interested in engineering-led and software-defined security governance at the cadence of modern development. As a trusted advisor to security executives, he uses his broad experience across building consulting services and day-to-day -day execution to build, measure, and mature security programs. He has been a co-author of the annual BSIM study and served as co-editor of the Building Security In Department of IEEE Security and Privacy Magazine. John is regularly invited to speak in keynote at public and private conferences. John, it's a great pleasure to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm thrilled to be here. John, let's jump right in. Um, from your perspective, what events or innovations, good or bad, over the past five years have led us to the state of cybersecurity we have today? What innovations? I think we're in a massive uh, sea change right now uh, as it pertains to the way we develop and deliver functionality. Um, you know, for six or seven years, you can recall me talking about shifting everywhere because delivery has become more continuous because whether it was pandemic related or, or cloud-based people are shifting more and more of what they do as a business into, into digital transformation initiatives um, for traditional secure application security programs. Um, this has meant, you know, sh going from shifting left to looking later in the life cycle and asking different kinds of questions. Um, looking at assuring what kind of provenance and integrity, you know, artifacts like containers and images is gonna look is gonna look is gonna look like. Um, recognizing how much of their infrastructure and of their network and of their architecture is infrastructure as code. Um, and beginning to treat that like they've treated their applications worse. Um, more recently, uh, organizations have realized that there's a tremendous amount of source code in their, um, their SCM, their source code management platforms, as well as their pipelines and service initiatives. Um, you know, and the engineering teams are building that out and uh, vendors are evangelizing supply chain security. Uh, and that really hasn't congealed into a coherent capability yet, but we're starting to look at that as a really key attack surface um, that organizations have as well. And so the point is um, code is eating the world. Um, and as it eats the world and, and, and ends up in every aspect from development 
to to infrastructure to to um uh to data um we have to shift everywhere with that code to do application security well um and i i think we're waking up to that to that notion um and that's meant that the previous specialization that we did as application security practitioners and executives um, is no longer a uh, asset, but it's a liability. Um, and you know we're sort of staring at um, a, a, a dramatically larger attack surface for our for our code and our, our software than um, than we built our tooling to to handle. So, John, um, you mentioned infrastructure as code. You mentioned everything is code. Um, what have you seen in the past years where people have started to adopt policy as code and really start to automate all of their controls? Do you see that that's stuck? Do you see that people are are starting to leverage that and move toward that? Or are they still going to just run around with spreadsheets and do things manually? <laughs> There's a lot of spreadsheet. Um, you know, as, as everything has become code, the, the holdout has been uh, governance is code or, or, or policy is code. Um, but to stay at the cadence of continuous delivery, that's going to need to make the leap to as code as well. Um, you know, we, we, there are open source technologies like Reg and OPA out there that help you define policy uh, in a very machine and human readable code-based format. Um, certain vendors that are forward-looking, Synopsys being one of them, has begun to, to tap into policy as code as part of its platforms. Um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of policy as code inherent to development platforms uh, like GitHub and GitLab that allow you to codify more and more from a DIY perspective of what you want governance to look like during build. Uh, as code. Um, however, I, I would say that this is early days uh, of, of that. And um, what people are struggling with is the challenge of how to convert. Um, I, I'd say there are three main challenges. One, um, a lot of the guidance that's out there is relatively subjective. Like, thou shalt um, make sure these tenants are least privileged or thou shalt compartmentalize data. Well, what does that, what really qualifies as least privileged or what qualifies as compartmentalized or, you know, how many people are too many to have access to this key or this repo or this build process. So I think one of the things that people struggle with is converting that subjective judgment into, you know, the, the concrete as code Checks they're going to make. Right. Um, that's the first challenge they have to deal with, and that requires some some handholding and 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 help from 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 experienced people there. Um, the second problem is you sort of have to pick a horse. So if you pick the horse um, like GitHub to put your policies code in, then you have a great experience as long as you're using GitHub. Um, you get a the developers get a native experience to security governance. Um, that has a lot of good virtue, but it has two negative virtues. One, some people allow the wolf to watch the hen house on that one, and they don't have security in play to make sure that what developers are doing is actually governed. Right. And then second, um, you have the challenge of, well, 
I don't just have GitHub. I have mm -hmm. a variety of different environments and different pipelines. So in those cases, you can go to all-in-one vendors, such as a synopsis, um, and you, you can solve the, you know, the, that, that, that problem, but support for the incredibly fragmented world in which we live has been a challenge for the vendors on the other side of that equation. And so people struggle with getting the coverage once they've gotten the subjective language into something actionable that they, they can deal with. Um, you know, and then I say, I would say the third problem is that policy is code or that governance is code is, is code. So you have to begin to care about it like you do your other software. It mm -hmm. needs to go through a life cycle. And what people are doing is they're throwing that egg against the wall and it, you know, it sort of just drips down the wall and oftentimes isn't even maintained, let alone governed with life cycle behaviors, requirements, testing, versioning, release. And of course, that third problem has, you know, pretty dramatic implications uh, because when you change the governance, you change all of the scoring and all of the metrics and all the decision making that executives are, are, are consuming and then, and then acting on. Um, and so you're shifting the ground underneath, you know, questions of, well, did the score go up because the test got harder or did the score go up because there's more defects and exposure and so on and so forth. So I think, I think mm -hmm. policy, policy as code and governance as code is an absolutely essential mechanism to get legacy tech uh, application cap security capabilities into the, the the modern world, but you've got to interpret what's out there into something concrete and actionable that can be manifest as code. Um, you've got to solve your support and experience problem across the heterogeneous development uh, environments that your, your, your organization often through acquisition has acquired. Uh, and then you've got to, you've got to treat that like, like software that you're going to release with some 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 rigor um and uh you know i think too many times there's almost like a dichotomy where when um when engineers get a hold of something as code then it sort of you know it sort of disappears down some rabbit hole and it doesn't get the kind of adult supervision that you know the, those three categories of of, of challenges and, and solutions uh, necessitate. Yeah, because the security team buys it, and the security team's not a development team, right? So you can see where that goes. It gets as much design and architecture as the rest of the software does. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, so, John, I, I want to keep us here for just a minute. You know, we're talking about, you know, what got us to where we are today. I, I want to flip that just a little bit. Um, it just and you know it's an unfair question because it's, it's Monday morning quarterbacking. But you know, knowing what we know today, um, and looking back on the history of software security, let's just say the last twenty years, um, you know, we did a lot of stuff. We the the community did a lot of stuff. We we you uh, wrote books. We created tools. We we came up with management methodologies. We came up with scoring methodologies, a la BSIM. We did a whole bunch of stuff. What? But you know, today we still find bugs on virtually you know every line of code in every application. What, what could we have done differently 20 years ago, 10 years ago, with what we had available then? You know, that would have really 
change things for today? I mean, you saw all that. What what would you have done differently? Everything. The 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 the, the we were bushwhacking. There was no path. Um, uh, the, but your question isn't really even counterfactual. It's practical, because we had mainframe security and mandatory access control on you know, trusted VMS, and we had security for high trust systems. And then the web happened, and it was complete chaos. And we went through that chaos over the last two decades, as you're describing. Um, one of the things that we did that was positive, that gets no credit because it's so taken for granted at the moment is, um, and this was something that my, my, myself and others did, is we said, look, there's a bunch of people out there telling you they're going to find what's wrong with your software. There are touch points, darn it. You can do code review, and there are tools that will help you with that. You can do penetration testing, and there are tools that will help you with that. Holy cow, you've got a bunch of open source. There's tools that can scan that. You're going to need training. We created five to seven touch points that organized the space. Um, you know, now we're doing the same thing over again. You know, um, web became mobile, became embedded. It's now cloud. And when I look at organizations, cloud practices, both functional and security-wise, have sprung up as mirror images and peers to the application security uh, initiative. Uh, in fact, sometimes in a competitive or deleterious way. And they're going through the same thing that you know we went through back then. The 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 tool space is exceptionally fragmented. Um, you know, th there's there's the guidance needs more specificity. Um, I think they're doing a lot of things better, but it comes down in a lot of regards to those same three problems. You got to take the industry standard policy and guidance and make it actionable. You've got to port that to your tech stacks and find ways to scale it across your organization and your and your tech heterogeneity. And then you've got to start to iterate that and manage it in a, in a, in a formal way. And, you know, right now we're kind of in this paralysis um, because I, in a lot of regards, the same thought leadership that occurred in application security 20 years ago isn't really manifesting in a decisive way in the cloud market. Briefly, and then we'll move on. So is the, is the cloud chaos of today just another example of the web chaos of 20 years ago where we get the opportunity to make every design decision and security mistake all over again? There's a lot of parallels and there's some differences. Um, you know, one, one, of the, one of the parallels I like to draw is that, you know, PCI is a solved problem from our perspective today. But sometimes we forget the pain and and trauma that the seven years of that bottoming out and becoming commoditized caused us as organizations and vendors. Um, you know, you've got the Biden executive uh, order 14028, and you've got the NIST 8397 guidance that comes along with it. And there's a few touch points inside that guidance. Thou shalt S-bomb, thou shalt threat model, thou shalt diagram. Those commandments are like the PCI commandments or HIPAA, you know, commandments. Sure. But there isn't a similar governing body to indicate what that actually means or how you're going to do that and it's going to be good enough. 
And so as it pertains to SBOM, there's there's a there's a chaos shaking out in the market right now. And you know, you guys certainly have a very clear opinion on that, and others have different opinions on it. And then there's the threat modeling one as well. And there's there's you know, the 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 NIST guidance refers to an SCI paper, which refers to 12 different methods of threat modeling. Um, some of which aren't methods of threat modeling, some of which are tools. Like it's, <laughs> some it's, of which it's, need to be threat modeled. <laughs> so 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 it's we're in a situation where they've said you need to be doing this by 24, 2024. And so we're going to experience a parallel, like a, a, a recapitulation of that historical, you know, um, commoditization of what it means to comply to that, but in a compressed time frame with a significantly broader, um, you know, base of technology we have to support it on. I think yeah. there's one thing a keystone to this, um, and this is unsurprising coming from me, but architecture is the keystone of a lot of these uh, challenges that we're facing again. Um, you're not going to train or defect discovery your way out of a lot of your posture problems or even compliance problems at this point with um, the new tech stacks that we're working with. And so I think um, whether you think of it from the perspective of you know formal threat modeling or you're just looking at paved road development process and architecture on the cloud of your choice with the kinds of secure blueprints that they're providing you and the kinds of guardrail technologies that help you use them effectively to your organizational policy and their stated standards. I think you know organizations, are going to have to come to the conclusion that we need process and governance, um, but we're going to have to be preventative and proactive with security architecture yep. in a way that we didn't have to the last go around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're totally on the same page about all of that. Uh, pre prevention is the answer, and you know, doing it well is the subject of a whole other conversation. So. So John, following straight on from that, as we head into the next three to five years, um, what are, what are, and you can take this whatever, whichever way you want, what are the biggest cybersecurity challenges you see, or what are the biggest challenges to cybersecurity that you see as we head into the next three to five years? Either way. People process technology. So, so um, increasingly people, let's start with people, increasingly, CISOs that I speak with or people that um, I speak with who want to become CISOs as the next step in their career are looking at a dramatically less preventative and technology-focused job. It's becoming more of a, um, of a, of a you know, from the CISO tribes, it's becoming more of the compliance cost center view. Um as people realize that the spend had gotten out of control, we're in the current economic cycle we're in, um, and maybe there are, you know, things that sit in the CTO's office in terms of cloud blueprints and other technologies that, that fix it. So the role and the stature in the organization is changing. And I think one of the things we did well, again, I, I've focused on the positive things, not the negative things we did, <laughs> but um, was with the BSIM and other community initiatives that we did, we we raised the stature of that executive and gave them more juice and more preventative capabilities. And I don't see that happening right now as much. So there's the people challenge that 
The second challenge is the nature of the technology is invalidating a lot of our controls. Um, so let's say that we have the open source problem licked, whether or not SBOM is easy or hard. Um, most of what people are delivering in the architectures I'm reviewing are what the CS, what I call CSP services or what the CSP called apps. Like you snap your fingers and you have directory services and you snap your fingers and you have RDS clusters and you snap your fingers and you have auth. And I, I don't, you know, you, you're not going to get an SCA tool to scan that. And you're not going to be deploying your IAST agents on those services or apps that, that Amazon provided you. Um, so I, I feel like the nature of software is changing again. We went to a very open source heavy mode, and now we're going to a um, a SaaS or CSP service heavy mode, and we're mm -hmm. integrating those things. And, and I think that's going to change the way we do a lot of our default process controls, defect discovery. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so that that's a key piece of it um, as well. Um, and then the, the, the third thing is, again, um, process-based, um, is in an organization, if you've got a cloud sec, a data sec, and an application security group, you know, where does accountability live and how do those people play together? There's, there's a lot of, you know, what I call the husband and wife play where you're sitting there eating dinner and you look up and, you know, both of you thought you picked the kid up from soccer practice, but there's no kid at dinner. <laughs> like, there's a lot of things that fall through the, the cracks in a modern security initiative because these peers are coming together. They report to different executives and they're sort of vying for, you know, the role of, do we define the standard? Do we enforce the standard? Are we preventing, you know, non-compliance to the standard? Um, so there's a challenge there around who's going to own this, who's going to be accountable, who's going to do the jobs. I think those three things are are very challenging to the to the average organization. I certainly like to talk about the CISO identity crisis. We'll have to talk about that at some point as well. Uh, I'm sorry, Drew, go ahead. Yeah, so John, I, I have like several follow-ups on on that. Um, you hit some really interesting points. So um, first, on the first uh, question. Uh, if you could paint me a rich tapestry, please. Um, this compliance game and that the CISOs are pulling back. Um, do we really think that's an, is an effect of the economy or is it an effect of the fact that for the last 10 to 15 years, we've actually been doing pretty good work in the industry and a lot of these enterprises have become more secure from the perspective that they've put the right controls in place and are living them. And now the CISOs can start to flatten out and dial in kind of a steady state. Or is it really that the industry is just becoming more used to the fact that we get hacked all the time? It's part of life. And so why keep investing in that that you can't stop and dial it back to a compliant? I don't quite no, but what I hear when I talk to CISOs is my top three are ransomware phishing and the reactive speed at which I deal with the next solar winds or log for J. And, and that's like a drumbeat. So they're, you know, what strikes me about those three things is that they're on their heels and they're reacting to those things and they're being asked to react to them faster. But they're not telling me I need a solution to those things. They're telling me I need a better way to react to them. 
So I, I think that's a, you know, you mentioned a piece of like, are we just used to it? I think there is some, you know, that like the, like the level of trauma, we've gotten used to that level of trauma. I think there's a bit of that in there. Um, but generally, I think that I, I'm concerned that it's a little bit, there's a negative motivation here. And that's that it's, it's just lost stature, because it wasn't necessarily um, seen as effective or seen as as as, um, as transformational as, as, as it was in many cases. Mm -hmm. Drew, Drew, if if I can interrupt you, I yep. want to re-ask your question because uh, I think we can we can torque John just a little bit more here. Um, Loading. Uh, so we know collectively, we know a lot of CISOs, CSOs, um, CROs, CAOs who are effectively doing checklist security because in many cases they're professional managers and security is a problem to be managed which is to them, which is why you end up with, you know, we want to reduce the cost of security. We want to, you know, take this kind of approach to it. If they've done all the checklists, then, you know, apparently security is solved. We passed the audit. We got a SOC 2. We got an ISO 27001. What do you mean I have a problem? So again, you know, to, to re-ask Drew's question, you know, why why should I spend more money on this? I've got my certifications. What I don't understand what you're trying to tell me, young man. This goes back to something I've harped on since the beginning, which is there's a weird chasm between um, oh well, eighty to eighty-eight percent of the of the of the problems that people suffer monetary loss from come at that application level. But what were the three things I listed? Were those at the application level? No, they weren't. You know, ransomware. No. So, so I, I think, um, you know, there's sort of a two-mode, there's a two-speed mechanism here. There's the hygiene you need to keep the business compliant and safe against those uh, in, potentially impactful but ankle-biting attacks of you know, ransomware or phishing. But then there's there's you're in business to to make money and keep that money making safe. You know, have you shifted into that second gear and you're you're providing that value, whether it's as a technologist or as a true risk executive or, you know, I, I don't think that has to do with which tribe you're in. But um, when I speak with organizations and, and help mentor them through their security initiatives journey, I seek to focus on whether or not security is preventing, you know, the, those bad impacts to the business. Do, do you... Do you have a means as you deploy this new technology platform to understand where impersonation or potential, you know, fraud and and uh, exfiltration of, of 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 funds or, or whatever the value to the business is um, in that new architecture? Because you built those things up over time in the previous one, and you're rapidly going to market with this new product, and we don't see any of that kind of security thinking. So I, I think I think. Um, you know, I think that the, the the CISO needs to remain strategic because you know what we had built was this perception that you know what makes a car faster is it the engine? No, it's the ability to have brakes and a seatbelt and bumpers. If we think about you know this the CISO and them security's role in development is providing those controls that allow the business to move faster. 
um, then we're in the right mindset. If we if we think about it from a certifications and compliance perspective, I just don't know that there's much value. All right. So my next question. So as you look at the advent of of technologies like low code, you know, really coming mm -hmm. into the market, people really taking advantage of it. How do you see it affecting um, sort of our job and the security team's job? Um, is it going to make things better? Is it going to make things worse? How are we going to really deal with it? How are we going to how are we going to manage that we know that it's secure? How does that whole thing change the industry? Yeah, I don't I don't look at no code or low code as a discrete phenomenon. I look at it as a continuum. You know, if you think about Salesforce and HubSpot and, and a lot of the other technologies, you know, we're building and this is I was getting to the CSP services. When you build for your business, you're building on top of, you know, platforms that are an increasing percentage of your code base. Um, and, you know, no code is just, you know, the furthest point to the left or right on that continuum. But it is a continuum. Mm -hmm. um, platform security becomes absolutely essential to that, that proposition. And uh, as Microsoft learned two decades ago, um, as Oracle has always fought throughout history, Platform security is exceptionally challenging because uh, you want maximum flexibility for your customer base. You want, you know, the least amount of friction necessary to get up into market and to you know, develop on it. Um, so there's this tension between the platform providers, obvious architectural flaws and them saying, but, but that's a feature and that's what the platform is supposed to do. Um, and so, you know, this again goes back to that architectural imperative as far as I'm concerned. When you adopt those kinds of approaches, you need to evaluate, um, you know, whether you call that a threat model or whether you, whether you call it, again, the paved road that you're going you're gonna to stay on with that particular platform. Um, you need to do that work and you, you need to do that work up front to understand how you're going to help people build on things. Mm -hmm. um, I was working with an with a, with a organization recently and they had gone to a um, an identity architecture where they had attribute-based access control, and they had they had begun rolling that out, and they were doing prototypes associated with that that new technology, and they were building on top of a lower code solution behind that, which was capabilities-based access control. And I said to them, "Okay, guys, you know the reason that your cloud identity people are having fits over here is because your architecture." has, you know, one's metric and one's imperial. Like these things aren't going to fit together. <laughs> so, yeah. you, know, the, you know, you're going to need, you're going to need either a clutch between them or, or, or you made bad decision. And let's, let's, let's walk through that. But, you know, there, you're never going to get that flaw of the architecture from an implementation and a development perspective. And so when I look at no or low code, I, I say to myself, I need to spend the time to understand what this platform's security posture, security controls, and frankly, you know, postural omissions are, because that's going to be the world in which I live from a security perspective, just like that's the, the platform and the development environment that the developer is going to live from a no or low code perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So more sure. focus on threat modeling, less focus on scanners. Yeah, well, because in, in addition, the scanners are, are typically, you know, not not particularly good at understanding the interface of those no and low code with mm -hmm. with um. But but 
on the on the other hand we're starting to see visualization um attack surface management and and other scanning technologies crop up that you know all of these technologies are based on configuration languages that are that are dead simple and they're all they all boil down to json or yaml so they're both human and machine readable and so we're entering a world in which the the whether it's infrastructure as code or the no, or the low code you know configuration based programming models are very um, analyzable. So, you know, what I like to say is that we're going to see a renaissance with technologies like static analysis, because, you know, this isn't your, your grandfather's static analysis world where you were trying to figure out C++ on a sunbox. You know, that's dang hard. Um, and you needed tools like um, Coverity or Semmel to do that correctly. We're now in an environment where, you know, these configuration languages are extremely analyzable. And so whether it's with open source like SEMGREP or, or other technologies that are based, you know, on in, in a, have an affinity with these platforms, we're seeing significantly better accuracy and results out of them. Yeah. Um, I think we're, I think we're a few years away from that becoming practical for the average adopting organization, but I, I think we're going to see a resurgence there that's going to be significantly more satisfying than the last 20 years was for us. So we need a new we need a new phrase. So we used to say the cloud is just someone else's computer. Now we need to say software as a service is just somebody else's open source and platforms is just somebody else's low code, no code, and we're writing on top of it. So and we're just configuring the glue and, and we're just configuring the glue. Yeah. So so John, as we head into you know, the, the, the end of our, our chat today, what motivates you to keep thinking about cybersecurity challenges? What, what keeps this interesting for you? Uh, is this interesting? Um, I, I don't, uh, I have never ever thought of myself as a security person. Um, maybe that sounds bizarre. Um, I think I wrote 30, 36,000 lines of code last year. I, I, I see myself as a builder. I've always seen myself as a builder. I see myself as an emissary between security practices and builders. Um, I love that the technologies we're building on allow us to move as fast as they do because we can snap our fingers and stand up really mature and impressive capabilities. Um, and I love that those, the, the people who are maintaining those packages are thinking about security. Um, you know, in, in, in C++ open SSL, it was, it was a nightmare. Java tried to think about security. You know, the node people have, and their dev frameworks have gotten much better. I, I like that we are making progress. And so we can begin to look up the value chain at those architectural flaws a bit more and actually make a play on solving them with the kind of Legos we're building out of and integrating. So to me, it becomes, um, possible to to whether you're in an organization or working with an organization define secure landing zones in the cloud and, and and better and more secure application architectures and not everything is like a, a rabbit hole and a dig that you have to go off for six months or 12 months to do it's 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 something you can work with the existing technologies on and so that allows you to move fast and prototype really really interesting things um and because all of this infrastructure is code and um, sort of interrogatable Kubernetes or cloud configuration exists, 
you can kick your running systems and out comes extremely analyzable telemetry about them. So you can see what you're building in a way mm-hmm. you never could before uh, and visualize that and, and understand it and play around with it. So um, those abilities that were just pipe dreams to us 10 years ago um, excite me from a development and from a security perspective. But, but I would say that, you know, one of the things I think that is a big challenge for the cyber practitioner community is I think a lot of people are afraid to, afraid to dig into the technologies. They're intimidated by them. They don't know where to start. I think the key to being effective in this, what did you say at the beginning of the podcast, this new, you know, this new world is the literacy on these technologies because they will, once you get over the intimidation factor, they will dramatically amplify your abilities. I would think I was going to ask you something so similar. So I'll make my question now specific to open source, just the broad world of open source in terms of exciting going into the future and what keeps you excited uh, a little bit. The advent of all these free tools, you mentioned GitHub earlier, you know, all these free security tools that are built into so many CI/CD pipelines now, whether it's Travis, Circle CI, GitHub, GitLab, et cetera. Um, do you think we'll see the curve on security, air quotes, in open source go up dramatically given the availability of tools? Should the, should the community be excited about that? Well, for every advance we make in technology, we may regress in terms of people. I, I, you know, Curfee pushed out an open letter to the OWASP community as, as it's, as a board member. And he he said like, we need to redo all of this. And then we need to be look more like the open source, uh, you know, the the Linux, um, you know, open source framework. um, I'd say the answer is yes. It's, 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 it's reasonable to be positive, but I think we need fewer consortiums and like the, the, the Linux foundation and the CNCF, these are great organizations that have, some of it requires subjective interpretation, but they've built very um, broad, but also deep technical standards in a way that we didn't do in the OWASP community back, back before they were more platitudes. These are very deep, very broad technical standards that are managed by, um, you know, consortiums that are tied to the vendors and practitioners actually delivering the open source and applications built on the open source. Um, And so what I would say is, yes, we'll get a positive result if the providers of these open source security tools and the open source software uh, are meeting at the table of like the CNCF and the OSSF and those existing organizations that are designed and funded by vendors and practitioners to improve quality. Mm-hmm. If instead it's power plays by you know conference or political organizations about like who controls who controls a, a project or how much funding goes to which conference, like then we're going to have gotten lost in the woods. All right. Um, and so I, I think I think um, what what organizations should do is continue to put their weight behind these these agnostic consortiums that are driving up the open source quality. Okay, 
Well, I'm going to get the last word and, and say, I think one of the first things uh, all these folks should get together on is redefine what the W in OWASP actually means in today's world, and then start taking it from there. Um, so John, uh, thank you very much for being with us here today. Uh, we're sure your insights have helped someone address a challenge, move forward, uh, probably even help someone with their career path. Thank you very much again for being here. We really appreciate it. Thank you too for, uh, for having me, it was, it was enjoyable. Thanks, John, we really appreciate it.